Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. One of the fun things about growing fruit trees is that you can grow unusual and delicious varieties that you can't buy at your local supermarket. Some of these cultivars were first discovered before the Second World War. Others go back literally hundreds of years. There's the pear main apple, for instance that was first written about in England back in 1204, and it still exists today. Golden Pippin Appens were available in the 1600s, and there are literally hundreds of other historic and heirloom fruit trees that you can buy and plant in your own garden. But when you can get your hands on heirloom fruit, what do you do with it? In today's show, we're going to explore using heirloom or even modern day fruit to make historic recipes. These are dishes that would have been eaten and enjoyed in centuries past. My guests on the show today come from across the United Kingdom. Orchardist and blogger Darren Turpin of OrchardNotes.com lives in Greater Manchester in the north of the country. Historic cook Paul Couchman of regencycook.co.uk is from East Sussex in the south. And culinary historian Bridget Webster of tutorexperience.com lives in Norfolk on the east coast of England. But before we start chatting about historic fruit recipes, I would love to hear from you. Send us an email during the live show with a question or a comment or just write us to say hi, and we're going to enter you into our contest. This month's prize is the Apple Cookbook, 3rd Edition, by Olwyn Woodier, valued at $12.95. So send us an email right now to instudio101 at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. And remember to include your first name and where you're writing from. I really look forward to hearing from you. So let's start the show today with Darren Turpin of OrchardNotes.com. Darren, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for inviting me on the show. Tell me, Darren, a little bit about your blog. Why why did you start it? It's partly uh, an aid memoir, so I can keep track of what I've been doing in the various orchards I work with. It's partly somewhere to put the results of various research projects that I like to carry out. And it's partly somewhere just to talk to like-minded people about fabulous world of fruit trees. 
Well, tell me a little bit, you talk about your research projects or your experiments. So what kind of fruit tree experiments have you done over the years? I've done quite a bit of research into historical cultivars and historical varieties of apples in particular, something I'm really interested in. Um, I stumbled across something called the Norfolk Biffin a couple of years back, which is uh, a very old um, dessert, which was extremely popular in Dickens's time, not about that kind of era. And I started looking into the Norfolk Biffin because I'd found some Norfolk beefing apples in our local delicatessen. And I was trying to work out whether I could justify leaving the oven on all night to cut them down into Norfolk Biffins. And I started thinking, well, wouldn't it be interesting to find out the story of this, this, this apple dessert, which was hugely popular and has, has absolutely disappeared apart from one or two archaeologists or historians who, who've experimented with it. So I started looking into the subject and I fell down a massive rabbit hole of research into baked apples, various kinds of baked apples and various kinds of fresh apples that were made into baked apples. And from there, I discovered a whole lot of very old cookbooks, um, which are mainly available online, digitized. They're available on Google Books or archive.org. There's an absolute wealth of historical recipes out there. So I started collecting some of these and posting them upon Orchard Bounce as well. So that became another stream of, of content that I do regularly. Um, and so, also- so tell me with regards, I'm very curious, did you try to bake those, the, the beefing apples in the old style? Uh, was it a very slow bake or what was the hack? I haven't tried it yet, but I've spoken to the local delicatessen and they've promised to put a couple of dozen aside for me if they get them in again this year. So I do have a plan to definitely okay. give them a try. Okay, yes, go ahead. So, so you were saying... Mm-hmm. Um, other experiments, I've, I've trialled growing apple trees in air pots, which are a type of container which are used by nurseries, um, just to see if that's a feasible way of growing trees long term. Made a few mistakes with the initial trial, so I'm, uh, I'm going to restart that um, next year with some freshly grafted trees. Um, I've also tried doing various different timings for winter and summer pruning on uh, trained apples, so cordons and stepovers. And I'm just really interested in best practice and modern scientific theories of how fruit trees actually grow, because I think a lot of the information that we have in the books today and that we currently use actually dates from the 16th and 17th centuries when this information was first put down on paper. And I think it's been repeated verbatim almost to the point where it's become received wisdom. But there's an awful lot of research that's been done, particularly in places like France, Italy, China, into tree morphology, tree growth patterns, and there's some really interesting results coming out. But it's all in very academic language. So something I'm trying to do is, is get my head around the academic language and translate it into something that ordinary tree growers can actually use. So that's something I'm working that. on at the moment. Yeah, I love that. That's that's my thing as well, is that I think fruit trees, growing fruit trees should be accessible to everyone. And the best way that we can help people is by trying things ourselves and seeing what works, Absolutely. you know, new techniques. So in terms of the old apple varieties that you grow, tell me where you are growing those trees. Well, I work, I'm lucky enough to work at a place called Alter Hall in Salford, 
parts of the building date back to, I think, the late 1480s, 1490s, and various additions were made to the building along the way. The current uh, iteration of the hall was revamped in 2011 and a heritage orchard was planted. Uh, so I am on the gardens team there with our fantastic head gardener, Joe Green, and I help all around the garden, but I particularly enjoy working in the heritage orchard. Uh, that's, that's one orchard I run. I also look after an allotment plot with 20 trees and I help out at one or two community orchards as well. So on the show today, we're it's before the holiday season and people are looking for special recipes that they might want to try, whether it's with an apple from the supermarket or with an heirloom apple. What is one recipe that you would love to share with the listeners that you found delicious, tasty, yummy, and easy to make? Uh, I highly, highly, highly recommend um, a recipe from Eliza Acton's 1845 cookbook. Um, and it's called Essex Pudding. Would you like to see an Essex Pudding? Yes, I would very much like it. It's the best tradition of cookery programs everywhere. Here's one I made earlier. Oh, very nice. We've got a beautiful, what I call a Pyrex dish with a yummy pudding cake inside. Okay, yes. So tell me about it. It's an incredibly simple recipe. It only has a few ingredients. Uh, You need, I'll I'll do this in old money because I can remember it easier. Uh, Eight ounces of, of either stewed apple or minced apple. If you use chopped apple, it'll float to the surface, so bear that in mind. You need um, four ounces of dark brown sugar. You need four ounces of the special ingredient, which is mashed potato, which sounds weird. I know it sounds weird, but when you kind of think it through, potato is a starch, the same as flour, so it's just adding that, that body. Um, and then you add four small eggs. You add spices to taste. I like cinnamon, nutmeg, ginger. You mix it all up, you put it in a medium oven for about 25 minutes, and that's what it turns out like. And it is delicious. It's it's light and airy. It's somewhere between an egg custard and a cake. So it's not quite as chewy and dense as a cake, not quite as soft as an egg custard, somewhere in the middle, and it just meets in this rather lovely, delicious, puddingy consistency. And I highly recommend it with lashing of custard. With lashings of... Custard. Custard, be, of course. Of course. Custard. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that sounds so good. Okay, we've got an email here, and the email is from Monica. Hello, Susan from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. I find it very interesting that your guest, Darren, was a science fiction buyer. I am a science fiction geek, and I found that quite interesting. Cheers. Oh, are you into science fiction? Yes. How does she know that? Um probably came up on one of my social media profiles or something um i used to work for a a bookstore chain in the uk and i i worked in the science fiction section well i can see a connection because sometimes you get these science fiction programs that have like this like you almost feel like you're in the past in the future you're time traveling you know so that makes sense So that recipe sounds delicious. And I want to say to the listeners, all the recipes today, they will, and you will be able to find at orchardpeople.com slash heirloom dash fruit dash recipes. So that's orchardpeople.com slash heirloom dash fruit recipes. So Darren, you have a grower's perspective. 
But in the, later in the show today, we're going to talk a little bit more from the perspective of history and a historical cook perspective and a culinary historian perspective. So are you okay staying on the line for a minute? We'll hear a few words from our sponsors, and then we're going to meet some of your colleagues. Does that sound good? Absolutely. Okay, wonderful. So you are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm Susan Poisner, author of the Fruit Tree Care book, Growing Urban Orchards. So after the break, we are going back in time to taste some old world recipes that were popular hundreds of years ago. I'll see you in just a minute. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes over 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Whiffle Tree Nursery. Call us today. If you're listening to this show, you are passionate about fruit trees. But do you care how your trees are grown? Silver Creek Nursery is a family-owned business, and we grow our fruit trees sustainably using only organic inputs. We stock a huge range of cultivars, like Wolf River, an apple tree that produces fruit so large you can make an entire pie with just one apple. We also carry red-fleshed apples, like Pink Pearl, as well as heirloom and disease-resistant varieties of apples, pears, apricots, cherries, and more. We ship our trees across Canada, and we can also supply you with berry canes and edible companion plants to plant near your trees. At Silver Creek Nursery, we grow fruit trees for a sustainable food future. Learn more about us at silvercreeknursery.ca. Did you know that Susan Poisner of OrchardPeople.com teaches fruit tree care courses online? Here's a testimonial from Roger, a student from Howe Island, Ontario. Some years ago, I retired and I wanted to have some fruit trees, so I did the usual. I went to the big box stores and, and bought what they had and I planted them and I had some successes, but more failures. In fact, I was almost ready to give up when I discovered Susan's online course. It taught me a lot of what I thought I knew but didn't know. It's in uh, bite-sized pieces that you can easily understand, and you can review the course whenever you want. Last year, I had such success that this year, I had to do very little in terms of pest management, either with insects or with disease. 
If you want to grow organic fruit trees, join Susan for a workshop at orchardpeople.com slash workshops. For 10% off tuition, use the discount code PODCAST. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board right now, send us an email. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and podcast, brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner, author of the Fruit Tree Care book, Growing Urban Orchards. And in the show today, we have been talking about growing heirloom fruit and using it in historic fruit recipes. In the first part of the show, I chatted with grower and blogger Darren Turpin from Greater Manchester in the UK. Now, we're going to continue chatting about historic recipes, but first, I would love to hear from you. What are your favorite heirloom apples? Do you have any old recipes that you love? Tell us about it by sending us an email right now with a question or a comment, or just write us to say hi, and we'll enter you into today's contest to win this month's prize. It is the Apple Cookbook, third edition by Olwyn Woodier, valued at $19.95. So to enter the contest, all you have to do is just email us at instudio101 at gmail.com. And be sure to include your first name and where you're writing from. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. So next, I want to chat with Paul Couchman. Paul teaches historic cooking classes in person and online at regencycook.co.uk. Paul, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, my pleasure. It's lovely to be here, at least virtually. It is so lovely <laughs> to have you. And I wanted to ask, how did you get interested in historic cooking? Um, really by chance. So I, I volunteer at a place with an amazing kitchen. It's a, it's a large Regency townhouse by the sea. And right in the basement of the townhouse was the old kitchen. And that was basically, dem- well, it had fallen apart. It was derelict, completely unloved. And over a course of two or three years, um, I helped to put the kitchen back together again. And once all the building work had been finished, we were left with this beautiful space, but there was no real purpose for it. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be lovely to actually start cooking in this space? And would it be lovely to actually use the recipes that would be made here 200 years ago? And so I set up a little table and I think the first thing I made were some mince pies. It was Christmas. Um, to just stand there, I mean, I had nothing. We had a tiny oven, I had a little table, and I just stood there making pastry under a large skylight, and I just felt like I was in the past. And, you know, you've got the feelings and the smells, and when the pies were made, you have the tastes, and I thought, I have to do more of this. And this really when the whole kitchen started taking off. And when I started learning about 
the, the food and about the recipes that would have been made in this period. And so what we've done is tried to bring the kitchen back to life with food. You know, so, so yeah, so, so that when people come in, it's no longer an empty space. They can actually walk through the corridors and smell, you know, baking cakes in a distance. And, um, and as they come in, we can give them something to taste that um, would have been made in their 1820s or the 1830s. That sounds so wonderful. It brings you back in time, I guess, just to have all that your senses engaged. We have uh, an email here. Let's see. It's from Ron. Ron says, hi, that recipe sounds amazing. I think Ron is referring back to our last recipe with the apple pudding with the potatoes in it. So Ron says, yummy, just in time for Christmas. I'm listening to you from St. John's, New Brunswick. St. John, New Brunswick. So thank you so much, Ron. So, okay, you renovated, you helped to renovate this kitchen that is 200 years old. What's in the kitchen? Ah. <laughs> like, how, what, what kind of features did they have in a, in a kitchen in those days? Well, that's a great question. It's a really large space. And so it's a, squ- a very square space. Um, they would have had a range. So we've got the space where the range would have been. So that's a big sort of cooking sort of metal box that would have been heated. Um, so you've got ovens on, on to, in the middle and you've got a big um, sort of working um, space at the top and that's all heated with um, fire from underneath. But you've also got a very beautiful skylight to let the light in and next to it is a room called the scullery which is where they would have done the washing up. So that's uh, in a sort of um, windowed room off it. Um, and we've got, of course, we've got a big uh, dresser which is still there. So it's the original kitchen dresser. So you, you, we've probably all seen little ones, but ours is ginormous. It's about four times the size of most dresses. Um, and we're lucky because that's been, it was in pieces. We had to put it back together again. But it's one of the pieces of the furniture that survived in the whole house, actually. You know, and so fundamental, if you think about it, to a kitchen, to have the dresser there. And it's got these big, deep drawers and a work surface that you can actually see where people have used knives and um, worked on it, which I, I, I think is lovely. So when I stand at that work surface, making things. I can just picture other people doing that as well. Like I said, 200 years ago, yeah. And so what kind of people would have been working in that kitchen in that era? So there would have been three or four people working there. Usually they were women. Male cooks were a lot more expensive. And so you tended to, if you wanted a male cook, you'd pay a lot more because it was a sort of status symbol. But mainly it was women. I think 80% of cooks were women. But sometimes they would hire in a chef for the evening and you can imagine the whole um the consternation amongst everybody you know to get (laughs) you can imagine the cook having her nose put out a joint by this male chef that came in you know did his tricks for the evening and then disappeared again after receiving rather a lot of money a lot more than she would have earned so we play with that idea because of course i'm a i'm a man and um the people i tend to work with tend to be women as well so we we do joke about that (laughs) That is so funny. Oh, my gosh. The men get all the attention. They did. How unfair. How unfair. (laughs) So there you are in this uh, kitchen. Now, the period that the house is from is a Regency, is the Regency period. So what's so special for you about that period and the kinds of things that their lifestyle and the kinds of things that they ate, the recipes that they had? I think it's such an elegant period. It's so beautiful um the architecture i think is some of the best 
and they were very really ahead of their time especially even with the kitchen it's a very beautiful light space you know it's the first time they actually did that and when you go into victorian kitchens they start getting all dark again so we're really very lucky to have this beautiful space um the food is amazing because what they tended to do was have whole banquets of food, you know, tables laid out with dishes, which I really enjoy doing. And we've actually replicated that once. We did um, a dinner upstairs in the old dining room and we, we recreated some of the dishes and we had to take it from the kitchen to the dining room. So you can imagine all dressed. Actually, some of us were even dressed up. And I wasn't, obviously, but <laughs> some of us were dressed up in skirts as well. And so they had to um, go up the stairs you know, with these heavy dishes, just as people would have done from the kitchen to the dining room. So we were really in, in um, you know, living it <laughs> as, yeah, 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 just living it completely. And that's what's so and lovely so, about it. Yeah. And that's what people in those days, 200 years ago, yeah. the staff would have had to do that yeah. in these yeah. long gowns. Exactly. Trapes upstairs with heavy dishes without tripping, blah, yeah. you know, it's incredible when you think about it. And then upstairs, who's upstairs enjoying all the bounty? The rich, obviously, yeah. And what, what, what I always think is lovely is that um, they always cook too much food. And there was this idea that the food that wasn't eaten upstairs, and there was a lot of it, would go downstairs. And so the servants would get to taste it. And what they tended to do was the head servants used to get the best bits and then it would work its way down the servant hierarchy so that, you know, the housekeeper and the cook and maybe the butler would get the best bits, obviously, from the sideboard. The, the other servants might end up with something a bit less. And any food that was left over there went out the house as alms for the poor. So there was, there was really this idea of, you know, of giving food to everybody, which I quite like. And you forget that sometimes when you see these big banquets, you think, oh, they must have just eaten everything. But actually, it was all very systemized. You know, all this food would, would be dispersed in different ways. Often, another thing I just should say as well, sometimes they had second dinners, which I always loved the idea of. So if you weren't invited to the first dinner, you might have gone to the second dinner where the, um, the food would have been the food that people didn't eat on the first dinner. But they would know that there was, had been a first dinner, so you'd know that you were a second-class guest. So I think that's always a bit of a, <laughs> of a shame. Oh, my it? gosh. Wow. Yes. Hopefully the world has changed a little bit since then. But uh, we've got an email now. Let's see. This is from Steve. Hello, all. Talk about irony. We are talking about delicious recipes from past history, and yet we're using modern technology to let the world know about it. Amazing. Yes. Great show. I live in Delson, Montreal. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, it is kind of crazy, isn't it? These are such old recipes, some of them. Um, and yet we humans still love our food. Yeah, especially fruity dishes. So I know today you have, you, you're bringing a recipe, a fruity recipe to the table. Um, what's your recipe today? So just quickly, I've, um, just to tell people, I'm using, a, I've got an old manuscript cookbook. So this was given to me through Instagram. So talking about modern technology, somebody contacted me through Instagram and said, I have a cookbook you might like to have. And it's an 1820s, 1830s book that's handwritten, handwritten notebook. And in it, there is a recipe for Mother's Eve's pudding. And it's all written as a poem, which I thought was lovely. I've, I've learned, actually, that it does appear in lots of other books. It's not just in this book, but it's, it's lovely. And, and am I able to read that out, do you think? I would love it if you did. <laughs> I have to put on a sort of accent for some of the rhymes, otherwise they don't work. But um, let, me just, let me just try. If you have a good pudding, pray mind what you're taught. Take two penny worths of eggs when they're 12 
for a groat. Then take of the fruit which Eve once did cozen, well parred and well chopped at least half a dozen. Six ounces of bread, let your maid eat the crust. The crumb must be grated as small as the dust. Six ounces of currants from the stones you must sort, lest they break all your teeth and spoil all your sport. Six ounces of sugar won't make it too sweet. Some salt and some nutmeg, the whole will complete. Um, just a minute, the, oh yeah, three hours, let it boil without fuss or flutter. And by way of improvement, add good melted butter. Oh my gosh, that is incredible. I love that. I love that. Who writes poems? Who writes recipe poems anymore? <laughs> Nobody. That is wonderful. So you had to then get this recipe from this beautiful handwritten book and cook it. Yes. Um, was it easy to sort of turn into a modern day recipe? And, and how did you do that? Yeah, it just what I did for you as well was just take it all down to individual quantities. Just I chopped the egg, I, I took it down by the eggs and then reduced everything down. So you can make a small one. And I have on the table here, um, obviously people listening won't be able to see this, but I've got these tiny little puddings that I've made. So they're made in pudding cloths. I'm just holding one up now. So they're about the size of my palm. It sits nicely in my palm. What I've done is used a pudding cloth and then put the contents inside and then boiled it like this. I, I hang them over wooden spoons. It's quite nice, actually. So you can, if you make the string quite long, you have a wooden spoon and you hang that over the boiling water and you boil them. They don't need long because they're small. So when you make a big one, it needs longer. But this is actually really handy because you can just keep them in the fridge. And when you feel like eating one, they're there for you. They so they look well. almost apple size. So yeah, it's a, right. And is yeah. it in a, a cheesecloth? Is that a cheesecloth? Yeah. Would we call that? I've used cheesecloth this time, but often in the past, they would use whatever cloth they had. And I've seen some reports of using old pillowcases, um, old shirts, you know, any bit of fabric that you have, you can use. So that's, that's quite handy for us as well. And, and then you, so you mix the ingredients together, I guess, in a bowl yep. and then scoop them into your cheesecloth, uh, tie a little knot, I yep. guess. Yeah, that's right. And then you suspend it in your boiling water from a spoon, a wooden spoon. And how long do you boil this beautiful dish for? So the little ones I've done for an hour and that's fine. And you either eat them immediately or you let them cool and then heat them up for another hour again. If you've got a bigger one, you do it for a long, longer. So the the recipe calls for three hours boiling. Wow. So that is that apple currant recipe we have on our webpage where we have all these recipes. Orchardpeople.com slash heirloom, H-E-R-L-O-O-M, heirloom dash fruit dash recipes. That's orchardpeople.com slash heirloom dash fruit dash recipes. So we've got an email now. Ooh, this is interesting. Uh, this is from Dan. And Dan is from Tuscana, Arizona. Hello to all. Can your guests please tell us what is the oldest recipe that they have? Oh, so this is interesting. Um, well, I have you right now um, chatting with me, Paul. What is this your oldest recipe or have you encountered older ones? Um, to answer that, really, um, the, the recipe I'd most like to make, maybe this is better, the, uh, that's the oldest I've come across, is Roman cheesecake. So that sounds really lovely. So it's made with ricotta, it's got honey in it, it's got pine nuts in it. So that's the one, oldest one I know that I'd like to make. Um, 
just talking about puddings there, pudding is one of the oldest, um, they think it's one of the oldest recipes that were probably made even before recipes were invented. Because this idea of using bits of animals, you've got um, basically intestines. If you think about a sausage, that's the, the oldest sort of pudding. You've got intestines and you fill them with bits of offal, you fill them with cereal and that sort of thing and boil them in a pot. That was probably done even before recipes existed. So, there's, you know, we don't have actually any evidence of that, but we assume that was what was made at that time. So for me, that's the oldest recipe. It's, it's sort of blood pudding. I hope that wow. answers the question a little bit. Yes, and in just a moment, we're going to talk to Bridget, who's going to give us some medieval recipes. So we're going to go back even further in time. So before we move on to Bridget, just to ask you a little bit about your teaching yeah. How can people learn more about you? How can people learn how to prepare these recipes from you? So I do online courses. Um, you can see me in my kitchen now. This is basically the setup. So I have a big table in front of me now and I do recipes um, in front of people and we all cook together on Zoom. So, so it's quite fun, actually. They have all the ingredients laid out and then we just cook together. And I give them also some history bits in between. So there's some other dishes that I show people. For example... Um, when the puddings were boiling, when I did a pudding course, I showed other recipes in between. And then at the end, we can all reveal what we've made. So I'm doing a mince pie course um, that's just coming up on the 5th, which um, there's a few places for. And you just go to my website for that. It's uh, paulcouchman.co.uk. Okay. Yeah. Or also regencycook.co.uk. Does that lead to the same thing? See, I can't remember if that's actually leading there. I know I it's my it, name. Does it? Oh, that's good if it I does. I think so. But we'll, what we'll do is we'll make sure that on our page we'll have both of those. We'll make sure, sure that it leads to the right place. Because it's a good time to be doing your Christmas, you know, treats and dishes. So that would be a good, a timely thing to learn. Now, um, I think, let's do this. Shall we then now talk to Bridget? Let's go back even further in time. So, um, Darren and Paul, would you like to come join me on a time-traveling journey? And shall we go back to the Middle Ages together? What do you think? I only want to go with your permission. Oh, yes, please. Yes. Love yes, to. okay. Darren says yes. Okay. Paul says yes. Then I think we have to take a moment, go back in time even further. And we're going to talk now to Bridget Webster of TudorExperience.com. She is a culinary historian who specializes in the Tudor time. And that occurred between 1485 and 1603. But I also want to remind the listeners that we would love to hear from you. We would love your questions. We've got a fantastic prize today, this wonderful Apple cookbook. And it talks about in this cookbook, she refers to a lot of heirloom uh, apples that you can use in her dishes. So send us an email right now to instudio101 at gmail.com. And now let's talk to Bridget. Bridget, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, well, I'm delighted to be here. Very excited indeed. Well, I guess you are used to taking people on time traveling journeys. Um, tell me a little bit about what you do at tutorexperience.com. Right. Well, my journey started about 40 years ago. I am a teacher of cookery, history, and many other skills, uh, which has have basically enabled me to be the perfect Tudor housewife. 
I didn't realize that at the time, but I definitely know that now. Um, so with this teaching background, I always realized it was so important to engage the students with as many senses as you possibly can. And I quickly worked out that cookery could be easily uh, taught together with um, history. And I think this is where my passion then really started, uh, because I could see how you could engage students who weren't into history at all. They just couldn't really uh, see how it would apply to them. But by doing recipes, um, I could get them excited about the taste. And then from that, it led to why do we like the taste? Why was it done like that? And uh, yes, and um, so... This is how it started, but many, many years ago. And I particularly like the Tudor period because it coincides with the discovery of the printing press. And that led to the first books. And they happened to be cookery books. Really? Um, so cookbooks were amongst the first yes, books yes. to be shared and printed. Absolutely. So, yes. so what was cookery like in Tudor times? Like what, what kinds of dishes did they enjoy? Right. The Tudor time is very interesting for any culinary historian because it marks the end of the truly medieval cookery and embarks on the new uh, discovery of what we now consider modern cookery. And it's right in between. And we can see the change take place between 1500 and 1600. Now, the early Tudor period still is very much um, with this medieval taste attached to it. So we're talking about lots of spices like cinnamon, nutmeg, ginger, pepper. And throughout those hundred years, we are moving more and more away from the heavy spices to more naturally uh, seasoned dishes using herbs and vegetables. And I've personally find that a fascinating journey how we completely almost abandoned the heavy spices for the use of herbs so we have an email here from Lori. Uh, Lori says I really loved the poem recipe great show so Lori's having fun um okay so before the medieval times I understand that it was more a it was spice based but it was also a more meaty diet wasn't it big heavy rich uh, pieces yeah, of meat very yeah. much on where in Europe you were at home uh because it was all based on the four humors um which meant to, to cut it really short, uh, the, the Tudors and the people in medieval ages based their uh, health on the four humors. That means four fluids inside your body, and they had to be kept balanced if you wanted to remain healthy. 
And if you lived in the north of Europe, and that included England, you clearly lived in a cold and wet atmosphere. That meant you had to eat food that would counterbalance that. And that was meat and spices. Those would heat your body and therefore counterbalance your, the climate you had to live in, where if you grew up in Italy, they encouraged you to eat food that was considered cold and wet because you had to cool the body. And so it, it depends. So Italy was uh, bay, uh, had lots of vegetables and fruit, even in the medieval age. But you're absolutely right. In England, it was meat heavy, definitely. So we have an email here from Bonnie. Bonnie says, hello, Susan, and hello to your guests. What an interesting show, a bit different from your norm. That's true. Um, excellent. I live in Stowe, Vermont. Please enter me into the book contest. Thank you. Well, thank you, Bonnie. Okay, so now today we're talking about fruity recipes. So um, what kind of fruit recipes would the tutors have enjoyed um, with the types of fruit that that was growing at the time? Well, obviously, it depended very much on how deep your pockets were. Now, food was one means to establish your uh, station in society. And if you were very wealthy, you wanted to make it clear to everybody that you could afford imported food. So people at the very top would um, import oranges, lemons, anything like that, dates, um, figs. But uh, people at the bottom uh, would obviously have apples, pears, plums. Um, and it depended very much on whether you could afford sugar, what you did with your fruit. What I personally find interesting is that this is the, the period where we see recipes being addressed specifically to the ladies of the house. Now, as Paul was saying, it, uh, cookery was, especially in the wealthy households, something done by the men. And in the Tudor time, especially towards the end of it, we see lots more sugar coming into the country. And sugar was needed to preserve fruit. And that started to be something that the lady of the house was permitted to do. That was posh enough for the lady of the house to get her hands dirty with. And we see... Um, Lots of recipes that involve um, the, uh, the, um, the use of sugar and fruits like um, quince, for instance, uh, turned into what we now refer to as quince cheese. But at the time, it was known as marmalade because marmalade is then was something based on quince and it came originally from Portugal and the Portuguese word for quince is marmelo and so we have the word marmalade even though today it means something completely different um, and uh, yes so that, that's basically what happened and a lot of 
that is reflected in that we see cookery books now specifically addressing women like the the good housewife's jewel from 1596 um or um the treasure the treasury for the housewife or um a closet for the ladies that's slightly later that 1608 but it, it's to me as a woman this is just so fabulous that at long last they realized well ladies can cook too and yes okay let it give her the sugar give her the fruit make the fruit last through the winter so even in the middle of uh, the winter at Christmas people could enjoy fruit We have an email now, and this is from Claudette, and she says, this is so very cool about foods and medicinal uses regarding them. All of the recipes that you have discussed so far do not remind me of eating anything for health, but for deliciousness. Los Angeles loves you. (laughs) So, well, let's talk about a little deliciousness because you have, let's, there's the spiced pear pie that you are going to talk about today. We have the recipe for it at orchardpeople.com slash heirloom fruit recipes. So tell me about that original recipe and how you adapted it. Right. Okay. Now the title of the recipe is to bake pears, quinces and wardens. And it's from a recipe book called The Good Housewife's Handmaid in the Kitchen. And it dates to 1594. Sadly, we don't know who the author was. But the original recipe is very typical of recipes from that time in that they need a little bit of decoding you often need to be a fairly good competent cook to understand what you're meant to do because uh, important chunks of instructions are often left out because cookery books then were geared at people who know how to cook unlike today so anything that was obvious they completely uh, left out. Uh, Often uh, you have to go through the bottom of the recipe to find what to get you started with. So you, you, you really need to have a good understanding of what you're actually going to make to, to pick out the bits and pieces that you need. Um, And uh, often you have to make up a few uh, missing um, bits and pieces to, to, to turn it into a sensible uh, instruction that makes sense. And this recipe um, is my husband's favourite. That's why, why I've chosen it, because I could make up my mind. I love every single one of them. But he told me that's by far the best, probably because it's surprisingly modern. And it's easy to make. And I thought I want everybody on your show to have a a chance to do this successfully. So that's why we've chosen it. Um, uh, What you need is pears. Now, the recipe asks you to use warden pears. And warden pears are an ancient uh, form of pear, which is very, very tough, very hard. 
And that was important in Tudor times because it means the pear physically doesn't go off. If you keep it somewhere cool and out of light, it, it keeps, it doesn't go off. It's just very hard, but it means it's ideal for cookery. So in your recipe, just try and find really hard pears. So not the ones of you, you bought three day, days ago and they're beginning to get soft. No, the really hard ones are perfect for the recipes, uh, recipe. And um, what you need is just some pastry and you can cheat and buy a ready-made one from the supermarket. You also need some candied orange peel. Again, you can cheat and buy that uh, from your supermarket, often found in the bake uh, the baking section. Uh, uh, so you need that. You what you also need is um, a little bit of butter and cinnamon and ground sugar and of course uh, ground ginger and of course sugar. And basically, what you do is you uh, use a baking tray um, and you line it with your pastry. You. On top, you put your pe- your orange peel and you use that for blind baking. Now, blind baking means that you bake that before you put in the rest. And that's what you do. So you put the um, orange peel on, you shove it in the oven. Uh, I'm I'm working with an auger, so it's always so difficult to say what heat. But, you know, medium heat, you don't want to burn it. And you put it in just until it turns a little bit golden brown. So roughly 20 minutes, you remove it from the oven and you then add the rest, the chopped pears, the sugar, the spices, you form a lid from your pastry, you put that on top and the whole thing goes back in again. So it's easy to do, uh, it's delicious and surprisingly modern. And if you think this is something that the Tudors did, it's quite unbelievable. (laughs) That sounds so yummy, especially with the candied orange peels. Um, We have an email here from Erica. And this is a great question. Erica says to all of your guests, are there any recipes that you encounter for Christmas pudding? Well, let's quickly go back to Darren. We'll get everybody to make a little comment on that. So Darren, have you run into a lot of Christmas puddings in your research? Christmas pudding as we understand it. um, I think Paul might be able to clarify this, but I think this is something that that came in as a, a plum pudding, possibly round about the Regency era, was it, Paul? Paul? Let me, let me just unmute myself. Yeah, I've just been writing about this all day, actually, plum pudding. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the quick story is, because <laughs> it's a long, complicated story, lots of different recipes, but I like the idea of plum porridge becoming... So you've got a sort of plum pottage that they used to eat and continued eating right through, actually, into the 19th century, which isn't very nice, actually. I've made it. But there's this idea of plum porridge then turning into something like I'm holding up now, these little puddings. So you can add more fat. What they tended to do was add suet to that. Um, you add more breadcrumbs and you get a firmer pudding and then you make that into a Christmas pudding. But the little puddings I've made today actually are really... Um, 
these could be eaten for Christmas. You know, the, the Mother's Eve's pudding. It's a lighter version of Christmas pudding. What tended to happen later on is you get the really dark, I don't know if you've all eaten it, but you get these really dark, heavy black puddings. They tended to be produced um, towards the end of the 19th century, beginning up to the 20th century. But for the, but the, the best pudding ever is um, Eliza Acton's 1840 recipe. 1845, which is really the best Christmas pudding, I think, ever. And that's a lighter version. So it's not that heavy, dark one. It's got um, less sugar in it and some apples in it, actually. Oh, <laughs> Going back on theme. Yeah. That sounds good. And so let's go to, and we should get that recipe as well for for our little article on orchardpeople.com, heirloom-fruit recipes. That would be interesting. Um, so back to you, Bridget. Is there uh, the idea of a, a Christmas pudding in, in, the, uh, um, in the 15, 1600s? Well, we know what they had on Twelfth Night uh, is a fruit cake, a spiced fruit cake, which is really more like a sweet bread uh, with spices and dried fruit. And we do know that that definitely was one of the highlights of the so-called puddings. Um, But the Tudors didn't have cakes as we know them, but they did have spiced sweet bread. And that we know the Twelfth Night cake is definitely one. And we make it every year here. I made uh, six loaves last weekend for our Christmas Tudor experience um, afternoon, and every single slice went. Mm, so, I bet. Really, it still appears. So, tell me, I want you guys all to comment as well on your favorite uh, heirloom cultivars, heirloom apples in particular, if it's apples, to use in your baking recipes. Um, and again, uh, let's go back to Darren. We'll start with you, Darren. What are your favorite cooking um, apples that are heirlooms? One of the absolute classics, which is still available today, is one called Blenheim Orange. Uh, it was originally called Blenheim Pippin, I believe. Uh, I think it was uh, raised around about 1784. Uh, the usual story is that it was discovered, I think this is the one that was discovered growing in a rubbish heap near Blenheim Palace or Blenheim Castle, or possibly it was raised by the head gardener of, of Blenheim. It became it became a fast favourite and uh, cultivar is still available today. It makes a fabulous looking tree and the apples are large and tasty and they can be cooked early in the season. If you leave them long enough, they become eaters. So they are dual purpose. So Blenheim orange, that's my top tip. So they, they basically taste better if you keep them for a while. You, they're not great right off the tree, but they're better if they age. They can be cooked well right off the tree and it depends how tart you like your apples. But if you do want something a bit sweeter, um, it's, it's one of those fruits that will develop off the tree as well. So very nice. Age and mature a bit. Yep. Okay. And so next we got Paul. So Paul, what is your favorite heirloom cooking apple? Well, I, I wonder if it's heirloom. Um, it's the russet. Um, I don't know if you get it in. Do you get it in Canada? Oh yes, of oh, course you do. we do. See, <laughs> you see, I think that is just most delicious apple, and it's one we don't get in the supermarkets anymore. I don't know if it's just my supermarket, but it's a delicious apple. They look a bit ugly, and maybe that's the reason. You know, they're they're a bit squat, aren't they? And they're not very shiny, and you know. But I I just think it's the best eating apple, and also delicious for cooking. It's the one I used in the puddings. You know, the little puddings. It's in there as well because I got some from a 
uh, there was a, a farmer's market and I just picked some up down there. I was so happy because you don't see them very often. My neighbour has, my neighbour's got a tree, but um, um, yeah, sometimes apples will fall off and, <laughs> but I'm not, you know, it's their tree really, but um, it's very tempting. But I'm growing one, but it, they take a long time, as you all know, so soon, hopefully. I think soon. the original hey. form of the russet was something called a leather coat. Ah, which is written about in some of the very oldest books on on pomology and, and fruit fruit growing. Um, and I think russets as a class, there's quite a lot of them. Uh, they were they were quite popular in France. There's a lovely apple called Orléans Renette. Yeah, again, it's, this. Yeah. that's that's got a lovely russet skin. That's got great flavour. Okay, so now Bridget, what is your favorite heirloom cultivar? It can be an apple, it could be the, the pear, the warden pear you mentioned. What's your favorite? Well, for cooking purposes, I would say it's got to be the custard. Um, there is no apple that's more medieval than the custard. Uh, and for eating purposes, I would agree with Paul, definitely the leather coat russet. Um, and I have actually planted a whole orchard uh, with all those very early trees to make sure that maybe not next year, but hopefully in two years time, I get to eat all of them. But this year I have harvested my first costards. And um, yes, that was a very glorious moment. <laughs> I am, that's very exciting. No, I have never tasted a costard apple, C-O-S-T-A-R-D, I think. Yeah. Um, but that's quite exciting. Darren, I want you to, we're going to do, uh, find out who won the contest in just a minute, but I want to go back to you to have the last word in terms of growing as a person who grows heirloom cultivars. Is there any cultivar you find easier or, you know, any cultivar that you find more difficult to grow for somebody who is relatively new to growing fruit trees? The very important thing to do, I'd say, would be to speak to your local specialist fruit nursery and get their recommendations for the heritage varieties, the heritage cultivars, which will grow in your area. Because not every apple is suitable for every part of, of our country or for Canada you you can it's it's the old adage that um you have to put the right plant in the right place and it, it applies to apple varieties and cultivars as much as anything else so get the advice from the experts see what they recommend don't try and grow an apple that's that's intended for texas if you live in toronto it, it it's not going to have the right conditions it's not going to thrive but there will Absolutely. be there will be some fabulous local varieties that you might never have heard of and the local nurseries might be keeping these varieties alive and they, they'll be delighted to find somebody else who wants to grow them. That absolutely. I totally agree with that. I would say here, here to that. I don't know. That seems appropriate. Um, absolutely. And if people go to orchardpeople.com and do a, use a little search bar, uh, put in the word nursery. I have a fruit tree nursery list with nurseries across North America, Canada and the United States. And I would love to add a section for the UK. I would love to get a list of fruit tree nurseries in the UK. So maybe that's something we can work on in the future. But in the meantime, who wants to win the prize? I guess all of you that wrote in because we've got a great prize. I'll tell you, this is a good cookbook. So let's find out who the lucky winner is. We have Gary in the studio. Gary. Yes. Now I would like to shake the bucket and who there is going to tell me when to stop? 
Oh, who should get? Okay, let's see. Well, I'm seeing Bridget on my screen, so let's let's okay. get Bridget to say. So, Bridget, I am going to shake this little plastic container. You will hear it and tell me when to stop. Are you ready? I am. Here we go. Stop. Okay, hang on. And let me just pull out a piece of paper here. And the winner is Lori M. And Lori, I don't know where you're from. I don't think in your email you told us what city or state or wherever you are in the world uh, listening from. But Lori M. is the winner. Well, congratulations, Lori. You are a lucky person. Um, it's a good book. Really good book. And what we're going to do is we're going to email you. We're going to get your address and we'll make sure one is shipped off to you ASAP. And I am so sorry for those of you who sent in an email, uh, excuse the little ring here, that sent in an email and did not win, but you'll just have to tune again in the next show because we always have great prizes. Um, so I want to say to all my wonderful guests, thank you so much. Darren, it was so great to talk to you. Paul and Bridget, I think that people listening to the show, I've got all of your websites. There is so much to learn about each of these wonderful people, uh, what they do, um, what they offer. So go to their websites and check them out. These are fabulous people with very interesting experiences. So guys, thank you so much for being on the show today. I hope you enjoyed it. It's fabulous. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, great. So here's some more resources for listeners. Uh, go to orchardpeople.com slash heirloom dash fruit dash recipes for the recipes today. Um, and you can also go to a really an interesting article. We've got orchardpeople.com slash tasting dash apple dash varieties. So I go through all the different apple varieties I've tasted, whether heirloom varieties, modern varieties, we, I teach you about apple tasting, so you can learn a lot from that as well. And that's all for today's show. We're going to do this all over again next month. I've got a really interesting guest. We're going to learn some new and different things. So thank you to the listeners who tuned in today, and I hope to see you again next month. From me, Susan Poisner at OrchardPeople.com, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time. Bye for now. to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at, at @urbanfruittrees. 
thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.9.